The name of the series that uh, I just want to get us going this morning in is called um, Faith in Action. And, uh, and so um, James is, is a New Testament writer. It's the half-brother of Jesus. He was the kind of big Kahuna leader in Jerusalem, wrote this book um, to be known pretty much as like the Proverbs of the New Testament. It's got, kind of got this gut punch all the way through it. Um, but as we, as we read it, I want us to look for the theme of faith in action um, because he's not just throwing out fortune cookies. Like this book um, has very quotable, memorable verses in it, but there's also a singular argument, a singular theme. And that, that's this is what we're gonna look at today is that faith is wholeness. That faith um, is not something that your mouth can say, but your body does differently. That your heart, you know, can have these categories and these boxes that they're all fractured and disintegrated. That, that faith is, is something that, um, that is something that we think and know, but it's also th- something we do and practice on day-to-day life. And so faith is, is a journey, um, not just towards religiosity or something to sing on Sunday. Faith is a journey from brokenness to wholeness, to being put back together again. Uh, and that's kind of the theme that we'll take for, for the book of James. But um, as you're turning there, or as you're scanning the passage, I'm uh, 84, 1984, January 4th. This January, I'm turning 40. Yeah, yeah, I like that, see? That's what I'm preaching on today. Like, like we, we have this uh, adversity, you know, averse, averse feeling towards, towards getting older. Um, I, don't, I don't feel 40 most of the time. I, I, I think like an 18-year-old probably. It's probably 18 and a half, around about there. Um, but it only comes up now and again that that feeling of 40, those in the room, that feeling will come back to you. Usually when you're talking to somebody and you think that you're, they're the same age as you, like you're talking like, you know, our age, and you use that phrase and you, you're quoting songs and lyrics and movies and you're talking to this person like they're your friend, and then you find out that their dad is 44. And you're like, now, wait a minute, like with the math here, if you're 44, you could be my kid. You know, your dad is 44. That means like I'm close to being your dad. Um, Secondly, another thing that'll make you feel 40 fast is um, like the things that you grew up with are no longer just like nostalgic things that people like look back on. They're actually ancient things that belong in museums. Like kids don't even know what you're talking about. We were at an Airbnb and my uh, third son, uh, well, my second son, third child, Alec, picked up, this is this moment for those of you guys that are heading to 40, picked up a house phone and was like, why doesn't this turn the television on? Just like had no idea that phones, he's like, what do you mean? Like there's no angry birds in this. How is this a phone? It was just like so startlingly weird for me. Third one is that you'll feel 40 is you just start telling dad jokes, you know, just nonstop, like where do mermaids wash their fins, you know, in tide, stuff like that. Um, I'm talking to strangers now. This is how bad it's gotten. You know, I'm looking for the you know, hair to grow out of my ears. We're in, um, we're in a Publix uh, sh- shopping checkout, and Kyra, this is classic, you know you're married to a 40-year-old, starts looking at a bird magazine, like goes past people, isn't looking at the royal wedding anymore, like looking at like what kind of a canary, you know, she's like finding in Greenville, South Carolina. And of course, like I'm like, I'm just like past that level of social awkwardness that I'm just talking to this 17-year-old girl that's checking us out. And I'm just like, yeah, that's my wife. She's just looking at bird magazines, you know, and she's like, gosh, dude, just like get out of here. Like, <laughs> stop talking to me. You know, like, what are you doing? So I'm, I'm, uh, I'm definitely getting there. You know, in, 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 in our culture, uh, in our modern era, and then particularly, I think in America, there is an aversity to getting older. Like if you go scan the room right now and look at like what people have on, like everybody dresses like they're 26. Like when I grew up, you know, it's like there was a suit and there was things that a 50 year old dude would wear and we would know we were going to wear them. And it was fun to wear them when you're 50, but you don't wear them when you're 20. Like everybody's trying to be 22. Have you seen this, right? 
Uh, if you look at, at, at even like our, our media, you know, in our culture, like, like uh, you know, obviously movies like Peter Pan or, or, or Billy Madison, like this nostalgia to like go back to be young because to be young is to be relevant, to be young is to be healthy, to be young is to be real, and to be old is all the opposite things. Like there's an adversity to getting older because the average age, the ideal age is 22. And once you get past that, like life's over, you know, is there adversity? Like you look at our hobbies, like how much older we're like playing video games. Where's that? What is that telling us? Like, because like the things that we are doing, you know, when it is that we're 17, 18, 19, 22 are are seen as the norm, the normal things. Whereas um, the things that you know, you would do as you get older, like, I don't know what you would do, play chess or something like that back in the 20s, you know, are, are seen as, as, as extinct, as something that's, that's irrelevant. And there's something deep down there, right? Like, I think it's, it's not just, you know, <clears throat> cultural convention that just changes over time. Like, I think, I think over time, modernity has caused us more and more to fear age rather than to cherish it, uh, to be anxious about growing older rather than to honor it and to accept it of what it's supposed to be doing. And, and, and so I, if I... If I if I were to write it down, you know, in a journal and really, really process it, I think it's like we associate um, growing older with getting colder. We, we believe that as we get older, the only people that we know that get on in age, that, that oldness brings coldness, that it brings a level of resentment, that the years, as they, as they come along, it's inevitable. There's, there's no choice in the matter. There's a powerlessness that when age comes and hits us and takes our years, you know, from us, we can only get more bitter, like, people don't get less bitter over time and more forgiving. They get more bitter over time because that's what age will do. It gets you colder. Um, that it makes you stagnant, that somewhere along the lines, you sort of get stuck and you refuse to move on. And, and so you're stuck in old versions of technology, old versions of bigotry, old versions of racism. And so the last thing that anybody in this room ever wants to do is get old because oldness is coldness. And so, um, and so James comes to us with a really good word, you know, because James is wisdom literature. It's like the Job of the New Testament. And um, it comes to tell us to not be afraid of age, to not, be, to not fear getting older, um, because um, the years come to us, it'll be up here on the screen if I could read it there, James teaches us the years come to us um, in Christ, not to make us colder, but to make us whole. There's like a, a devious trick, like a, um, a wicked thing. Of course, the enemy would want to take you know, a, a person, let alone a Christian, and tell them that their maturation in Christ is to be feared, to teach them that things like, you know, discipline or things like um, responsibility or things like, um, or things like devotion and sacrifice, that these things were to be feared. Of course, this would be the enemy's trick. James comes along and says, don't fall for that trick. Maturity is wholeness. Your future in Christ is not making you colder. It's making you whole. That's the inheritance that, that he wants to pour out. So there's seven times in the book of James that this word, um, you might repeat it after me, it's uh, tamim. It's a cool word, tamim. Uh, it means maturity or it means completeness. Like when Jesus says, like, you should be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. That's tamim. It means to be lacking nothing. It means to be made perfect, made whole, put back right again. Everything in its right place, spiritually, mentally, uh, emotionally, it's to move from a fractured state into a healed and whole state. That's what Christ is doing in our years. And that is the lie that comes to us that, that you know, running back into being Peter Pan and Billy Madison and, and acting, you know, a fool and acting like a clown and running away from responsibility as much as possible, that that is where wholeness lives. But Christ is saying it's the exact opposite. The maturity is wholeness. It's not 
It's not boredom. And so on the screen here, I want to use this little graphic for the next couple weeks for um, a study in James, the faith in action graphic there. Um, uh, the one with the picture. Oh, no pictures. I meant to send this picture. Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show you it on my iPad. Uh, that's my bad. That's my bad. All right, this will be on the screen next time. Um, but, uh, but James says that faith is integration. Faith is not something that you can say on Sunday and then never do the rest of the week. That's not what he, like, you might have a different category for what faith means. The box you check when the census comes around says, what do you believe in? That's not what he means by faith. Faith is an integrated heart moving into active deeds and actions and flowing out of that, that our tongues in public and in private overflow what it is that we truly believe and what it is we truly do. Like we think it's backwards. Like we read a Bible study and we're like, we're just going to go to Bible study and talk about it. That's what faith is. He's like, if faith starts with your mouth, I guarantee you're missing it. Faith starts in your heart. It's the things that you don't even say or the things that you don't even mention or the things you're afraid to even talk about. Before it's ever verbal, it's coronary. It's in your heart. That's where faith starts. And, 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 and trauma and pain, they work to fracture the heart. What do they say about PTSD? Trauma is, is your attic. It's, it's, it's putting a bunch of your events and past and history and pain into little boxes. You just compartmentalize them. You put them into these little boxes because you don't know how to deal with them. They're way too painful. So you just shove them into little boxes in the corner until your wife says something and then you get triggered and flip out because she opened up a box that you've never dealt with, right? And so that's what the picture of the fallen, broken, traumatized life begins is, is we come out into this world and we're fractured. Our heart is in pieces. And, uh, and as we know, as we work through that, the voice of truth comes to speak and gives wholeness and integration. And then, and then maturity begins to take form as James is going to talk about in terms of perseverance and how that takes place. Like, like nobody calls a man that loves his wife and goes home to his wife every single night. Nobody calls that guy a legalist. This is, the great, this is the great trick about faith is we think that faith must mean that life becomes easy. Well, that's not true. You know, nobody's calling a mom that goes home to their kids and loves their kids and continues to be devoted to them every single day that that person's a religious zealot. That person's not a legalist. They're just in love and they're devoted. So he's like, if your faith isn't working itself out in love, then that's not faith. Faith will require us talking to strangers in uncomfortable places. Faith will require us to confront people you know, and speak the truth in love. Faith is not just the pithy, esoteric escape. Faith is action or it's nothing. And similarly, that our, that our words that, are, that we're saying, you'll talk about, they're the overflow of our heart. Like the nature of man is, be careful because the, the mouth loves to travel away from the heart and spin things in a way that protects the heart from what it actually is. But the words, the words are not meant to be spinning narrative um, uh, tellers and that, that, that guard and guide the heart or protect the heart from pain. The mouth is supposed to be something that overflows out of what true and pure faith is, which is to love widows and orphans, is what James will kind of argue. And so um, just for today, uh, what I want us to focus on um, is, is what I think James is going to argue throughout the whole entire book is that, is that within the heart, that, um, that faith that is tested, the, ta- the faith that is tested, that perseveres and creates a mature, complete person, that faith is rooted in one simple thing, one simple truth that is going to dictate the making or breaking of our heart in faith over these years. And that is faith that is rooted in the goodness of God. That at the heart of this thing, uh, whether somebody um, 
moves through life and the years come to traumatize them into more and more disintegration and fracturing or whether or not the, the faith, or whether or not the testing and the trials of our life build us up from the inside out to become a complete, mature human being. The distance between that fork in the road is this belief. Do you believe that God is good? Is God good? That's the question I think that, that James is going to bring up. So if you're there with me, in James chapter 1, it says this. Um, consider it, verse 2, I'll start. Consider it, he says, pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Sometimes I think that, you know, I'm a guilty Christian because I'm not impoverished and I live in famine and sword. He doesn't say just, you know, drastic macro uh, global trials. It's just like dealing with forgiveness. Um, it's just like having a friend that disowns you, having betrayal, like normal Christian things that hits, hits all people across all times. Many different kinds of trials, many different variations of trials are going to hit the Christian life, um, not in spite of the fact that we're Christian, but because we're Christian. Because you know that this stuff, this testing of your faith, it produces a kind of perseverance. It's not, it's not moving around pain and trial, but it's moving through it. And this perseverance of moving through pain and trial finishes its work, its actual purpose, not to break us down, but to build us up. That trials have come our way, not to tear us down, but in, in God's hands and in Christ, to build us up, to mature us, to make us complete, to make us um, tamim, to make us whole, perfect as our heavenly Father is perfect, lacking nothing. And if any of you, it says, lacks wisdom, you should ask God for it, because he loves to give out wisdom. Like of all the gifts that you could possibly want, is the ability to see past people's flaws, to be wise enough to see past people, people's flaws and love people up instead of judge them. That's what we want. To be able to handle you know, conflict and complex situations and, 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 and dealing with the people that we love out of faith and not fear and stopping the vicious cycle of, of blame shifting and, and, and dysfunction and toxicity, right? The ability to have the wealth of wisdom is what God really wants to give his people. So you're, he's leading you towards this through these trials because that's what completeness looks like. He wants you complete. He wants you put back together again. And he says, if any of you asks for this, God wants to give it to you. But here's the trick. Here's the trick. And it's very, very important. Is that what you believe in your heart about the trial that's coming at you is everything about what's going to come out of you in that trial. And here's what you cannot afford to believe. You cannot afford to believe in this trial that God is not good. If you fall for the trap that God is cruel, if you fall for the, tra the trap that God is old-fashioned and foolish, if you allow the world or your, 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 your behavior patterns or your family of origin to, to somehow reframe God in a way that makes him evil, you're in big trouble. Not because he's like jealous or angry and he's going to like smite you for it. You've put yourself into a lie and you've sown your heart into a lie, and it's going to be a problem for you. If you do not believe, if you doubt the goodness of God in your trial, the exact opposite's going to happen. Your life is going to turn into the wave. Like, you're made for waves. You are not made for waves to be in you. And what happens when doubt creeps in is the wave actually comes into you, and you begin to be blown and tossed by the wind, and that person shouldn't expect to receive wisdom. That person is going to fall apart. They're going to become more bitter. They're going to become more unforgiving and stagnant and stuck because... People are, people are not to fall into the lie that God is evil. Such a person is double-minded, fragmented, and unstable in all that they do. And so, um, uh, that better be Jesus calling. I've always been waiting to say that joke. That better be Jesus calling, Taylor. 
So have you ever noticed how when you ask a, a, like a 20-year-old like what wisdom is, they're going to tell you like really like practical hustle tips. Like they'll be like, here's what wisdom is. Get up at four. I mean, your mind's just so much clearer and you're just going to like be in the zone. And you know, like, like they're going to give you hustle tips. They're going to give you tips about how to do more. Like you should just set good boundaries because, you know, like you just can't have these toxic people in your life. And you know, it's like, there's these like, I control my destiny type of things like that you get out of 20 year olds. When you talk to 70-year-olds, they're just ready to chill. Like, they're like, you know how you have a good life? Just, like, have faith, man. You know? <laughs> Read your Bible. Like, it's just simple. Surrender. Like, over here in the 20s, wisdom is striving. In the 70s, it's surrender. Like, I ran a marathon one time, and I was killing it in the first 19 miles. Like, an eight-minute clip. Just do-do-do-do-do-do-do. Just listen to Hillsong, passing old people, just killing it. I hit the Swamp River property on the way back in this Sphinx Marathon. Didn't have enough calcium or something, water, uh, nutrients, whatever I needed, and went from killing it to dying. I mean, in the scope of like a half a mile, like my feet cramped into talons and like just <laughs> stopped working. You know, that dream when you can't run, like that was my real life, you know? And so the first 20 miles of this thing, I ran it like an eight-minute clip. And the last seven miles of this thing, I ran it like 12-minute miles. Like, this is how much the wall, is what they call it, happens, right? And it's a beautiful moment, right? Because, like, I had my compression pants on, and, like, I was worried about, like, what color Nike shirt I was going to wear. And, like, I had this whole, like, vision about what this is going to be. And when you hit mile 20, like, all of that goes out the window. Like, you're just ugly pushing it to just, I don't even care what I look like. I don't care if I throw, I don't care if I pee my pants, like, you're just in a state where you're like over it, you know? And it's a beautiful place to be, right? Because like, like everything kind of zones out. You almost like hit this level of yourself that you've like never really experienced before. You like encounter like pain and surrender in this unique way. And I think that's like a little bit of what James is talking about is like, it's like when he finally knocks us down, maybe we're 40 or 50 years old, he finally actually starts doing, like we're actually ready for surrender. Like when we reach that place of exhaustion, have you done this before? Maybe you've been in a, a game before or something like that and, and football game or basketball game and you're so nervous and there's like all the people in the stands and the last pass that you threw that was messed up and then something just like snaps, like something hits you so hard and all of a sudden like all of that anxiety and the energy you're using for your ego and the, and, and the situation that you're in and how you looked, it all just fades away and you're just in the moment. I don't know if you ever felt that way from an athletic standpoint. I think that's what James is telling us and what Job is telling us in terms of the, the, the wisdom books is like, life is not something to be conquered as we find out. Life is something that conquers us. And wisdom is not something that we go and win. Wisdom is something that, that comes at us in waves until we're put on our back ready to listen to God like Jacob. And so we're actually ready to have faith. Like that's what real, real faith is because this is what he's saying in, in, in wisdom. Remember this, like wisdom is required for being complete. People don't earn wisdom, they ask for it. This is what's going to happen in your life. This is, the, this is the template, the curriculum for our lives to grow in actually godly completeness. It's not like, I listened to these seven podcasts and I got this great book and I have these six tips. Like, that's really cute. Like, those are helpful. I'm not saying to not go to church. I'm not saying to not have organized, you know, rules of life and Sabbaths that we take. But at the end of the day, wisdom is a gift. It's not a reward. And it comes when you're knocked on your back. It, comes in, it will not come to a human until they're surrendered. And what he's saying is, this is the curriculum for wisdom. This is God's plan. Is he's going to hit you. He's hitting you today, and he's going to hit you with waves, and he's going to hit you with waves until he hits you with waves, until you stop trying to earn wisdom, and you just ask for it. 
You say, God, I don't have this. I don't know what to do with my marriage. I wasn't as strong as I thought that I was. I don't have the answers that I thought that I did. I can't survive the way that I think that I, I'm not, I'm not a self-made man. I'm not a self-made woman. This is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And so this is what James is saying to, to, to think. But here's the thing. It's not that we're just fatalists. It's not that we just wash over it with these waves. It's very, very important. It, it, we do participate, but this is how we participate. Participate with this faith. And here's what the faith has to be. The faith is that God is good. Because so much of this life, here's what happens is that the circumstances begin to affect. They leak into our hearts and our minds, and they actually inform the way that we see the character of God. And people can survive all kinds of waves. You know what they can't survive? It's waves inside of them. They cannot survive looking at God and believing that he's to blame for the situation that we're in, to actually believe that God is malicious um, and evil towards us. That, if we, that we lose track of that, of that idea that God is good, we're lost. And so he goes on, and here's the thing. It's, you're going to start, you're thinking, well, maybe he's just like jumping around and just randomly throwing off freestyle Eminem app about the next subject that comes to his mind. We're going to start talking about money. It's not. It's not disintegrated. It's, it's, it's related. Maturity and money is related. He says in verse 9, believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position. He says, but the rich should take pride in their humiliation since they will pass away like a wildflower. So here's the thing. The Bible actually doesn't teach that money can't make you happy. Money made me so happy the other day. I went to Saskatoon. I was so happy. I mean, I was, I mean, I was literally not happy. I went to Saskatoon, ate an antelope, had some meat sweats, and felt great. I mean, for a week. Like, I felt great. I was telling you about it. I was... Like, it's not, it's not telling you that money can't make you happy. It's questioning how long it can make you happy. That's what you, should, that's what you should bring to the carpet when it comes to the dollar in your pocket. How long is this making me happy? What is the enduring value of the actual happiness? Because I can remember going down the street to GNC getting a smoothie for $5 with Kyra back before we had any money, and I, I'd put the happiness on the shelf in terms of the rearview mirror at the exact same, about the exact same. One was $100, right, from a gift certificate, and the other one was $5, but they actually... The happiness factor and the enduring happiness factor had nothing to do with the amount of money that I spent. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant, blossoms and falls, and the beauty is destroyed. I mean, I mean good grief. I mean, I, I'm not going to get to that. Um, I was just going to say, beauty is, beauty is short. I mean, have you seen the Beverly Hills 90210 cast? Like, I couldn't think of a better looking crew of people. The Friends cast, I'm just like, man, like, I've just got to be ready. The time is not good to your face is what I'm trying to say. In the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their busyness. Then he, then he brings it back. He's not lost. He's not trailed off. But blessed is the one who perseveres under trial. And then he compares it because you'd rather not have money. What you'd rather have is through the test, you would rather receive the crown. That's what you want. You want the crown of wealth. Wealth is wisdom. Wealth is not money. Wealth is wisdom. And you want that crown. You don't want to lose the crown in the name of money. That would be a foolish thing to do of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. So here's what you think about money. You think that he's coming down on you in this part and the next part of the book on money because what you've done with money is you've robbed from the poor. Like we're in trouble because there are starving kids in China and starving kids in Africa. And you should feel guilty because you have nine iPhones or whatever. And maybe there's a little bit of that to be true. But really what he's actually saying in this passage is not you should feel bad about money because it robs the poor. You should feel bad about money because it robs the rich. When we have money, we're actually not robbing from anybody else. And when we spend money on our own foolish desires that are here today and gone tomorrow, and we actually invest our hope in that money, we're actually not robbing anybody. We're robbing ourselves. Because what we've done with that money is we've, we've tried to, but 
unsuccessfully, we've tried to escape the test. Isn't that what money does for us? For a short little piece of time, it puts clothes on our back that allows us to be approved and accepted of and seen in a certain way so we don't have to go to the Father and ask for his word over our circumstance. We've robbed ourselves from the test of approval. And money, this is why he's saying that money should be, you know, the thing that you should be sober about and, and even feel bad about people that have too much money. Money allows us not to participate. The people that are the least wise, the people that are the most foolish, are the people that get to live in entitled bubbles and don't have to participate in the pains of life. And they're the worst because it's going to be too late. They're going to get to the end of the, end of the rope and realize the money didn't actually buy them anything and they lost the crown. Right? Isn't that, isn't that what's going on? <clears throat> and, so, and so if you think about your relationship with money, like what's, what's too much money to have or you know, what's rich, it's not money that's evil. It's the love of money that's evil. And it's the belief that money can save that is the real problem, according to James and all other parts of the Bible, <clears throat> that causes the stumbling block for the rich. But when you feel that pang of insecurity, this is what's really going on that, that James is asking us is not how much money, you know, you could give a lot of money to the poor and still have the idol in your heart of money. How fast do you run to the fridge? When your mother-in-law says something that bothers you, how quick do you escape that moment to go and buy something rather than be tested by that moment? How quick are you to use money to build a kingdom and a castle you know, like in your home or just around your life so that people actually have to come to you where you get to dictate the rules, the stipulations, the values in the nest that you've built so that you don't actually have to come into the world, be weak, and receive the Lord's power. Who are you robbing when you spend that money? The poor or yourself? I think is what James is saying about wealth. He's saying, as we approach this test, perseverance is making us perfect, and it's important that as we do this, that we never lose sight of this important fact that God is not evil, God is good. This is what he says in verse 13. He says, when tempted, no one should say that God's evil. No one should say that God's tempting me. When we get tested in American public schools, we are tested for a pass-fail response. Like we're tested as a gotcha, right? You didn't study enough, and so gotcha. And so we might cheat or we might try to find the little like loopholes or the quick cramming to try and pass the test. Like that's not what biblical testing is. Biblical testing does not come to us to fail us. Biblical testing comes to form us. It comes to squeeze us so that the things that come out of us are either one of two things, either things that Jesus forgives us for or Jesus has filled us for. But biblical testing has come to form us. It is a formative type of testing. It says, God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone, but each person is tempted and dragged away by their own evil desires. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when it's, full, when it's full born, uh, gives birth um, to death. So this is what happens when we hit tests, is that the water outside the boat, the challenges, the circumstances, actually make their way inside the boat, so much so, so that it's not just that the circumstance is evil, that somehow creepily uh, into our, you know, making, our, making its way into a semi-permeable, you know, substance here, makes its way into my heart, into my mind. It begins to tell me lies about the character of God, not just the circumstance that I'm in. There's only so long that you could see suffering in this world, and, you, and you're forced into this faith, and, 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 you, and you're forced into this place of, like, God can't be good while this painful thing is happening, Right? 
And it's, and it's not actually the event that is causing the faith to be lost. It's, it's our temptation. It's God um, testing us and, and us mistaking the voice of Satan for God's voice. And it's actually us believing that that incident is actually imposing on the character of God. And I actually believe that that evil event is calling, calling God evil. It's coming into a new cultural circumstance, you know, about gender or sexuality. And it's believing that the, that the conventional wisdom around me makes more sense to me. God is less relevant. Uh, he doesn't get it. He's, he's out of touch. He's not with it. He doesn't understand it. And so I begin to apologize for God to my friends and to myself because I actually believe that the world is wise and God is foolish. And that absolutely affects the way that I experience my test or my trial. It's that God... Um, continues to take longer than I want him to in my trial and doesn't show up and doesn't, doesn't provide and, I, and it and allows for not only that event to feel like it's flimsy and chaotic, it actually allows for the character of God inside of my heart to become fickle, to become undependable. And so, so this, this, this difference between, between evil and good is so paramount, is so important um, when it comes to how we navigate and how we make our way through um, our tests and our trials. I was um, um, talking to um, an old friend of mine, uh, Uncle Peter, on the phone uh, the other day. Um, he was a guy that uh, was a mentor of mine through premarital and has meant a lot to me. And um, I just heard his voice on the other end. I probably hadn't talked to him about 10 or 20 years, and um, his voice like still sounded the same. I think when I picked up the phone to talk to him, I kind of felt guilty for not having talked to him for such a long time because he's meant so much to me, and I know that he's going through a lot. Um, but I think also I felt this kind of twinge of fear that I was going to pick up the phone and hear that he wasn't as wise as I thought that he was. Like, a lot's happened since, you know, 2005, since I've been married, and a lot has changed in my life, and um, it's led me to not trust people as much. It, it's led me to really doubt whether or not the character of God is real. It's really led me to doubt if people really can change. It's really led me to doubt whether or not people really can be wise. Maybe he was just some old, you know, relic, guy that uh, said a couple of wise things to me. And I created, you know, this Mufasa uh, caricature of him in my head, but he's not really as wise as I thought that he was. And he, and his voice was so tender, but yet so strong. And, and unlike a lot of the people that, you know, I deal with in my life, the people that I, in my own head, the voices that I hear in my own heart, so different. It was so steady and not double-minded. It was so firm, but it wasn't, it wasn't ignorant. Like it came with the walk, years of wisdom and, and practice and, and, and thoughtfulness and devotion. It wasn't, it wasn't just something that, um, that he was just emotional about one day. Like you could see this fortitude in the scripture that comes out of his mouth. Like when he prays, do you know somebody like this? Somebody that knows how to live for the moment and live for the long term. Somebody that's been made complete and lacking nothing. Somebody who, um, who knows, how to, um, who knows how to go into conflict well and forgive. It was like this voice on the other end. And, um, and it really confronted me. Like, I, I really thought about it when reading this passage, you know, this week of, like, between the years of 2005 and 2023, how much has tried to creep into my life to tell me that God's not good. And, and, and in this rush of, like, talking to Uncle Peter um, and praying with him that day, it was, like, reminding me, like, God is good. You know, like... There's so many competing influences and voices and feelings even that go on inside of our hearts and our, and our minds that conspire to tell us that he's not good. And we come up here in church and we sing 
and we praise and we want to say it until we believe it. But it's like, there's so much, if we're honest with ourselves, we don't believe he's good. We don't believe he's good. We believe that he's part of some old fairy tale of something that we believe we fell for some trick and we're still here at the party when everybody else has left and had fun. And he's this irrelevant person. Like, he's not good. He's not wise. He's not, he's not kind. He's mean. He set me up to fail and he sent me out on this mission and it didn't go well and everybody else turned their back on me and I acted ugly. And if I would have just stayed in the boat and wasn't obedient to him, I'd probably not be in the problem that I'm in. And so it's his fault because he's cruel and he's not kind. And he wanted to catch me in it. He wanted to send me out on this test to prove to me what a failure I am because he's cruel and he's not kind and he's not good. And whether or not we talk about that and whether or not we confess that, like that is the wrestling, you know, of our heart. And so I think here's what James would tell us, you know, like this is not just about a fortune cookie or, um, or something to, um, just something to quote or to memorize. It's like faith is something to live. And what faith is fixed on, you know, in the waves and the chaos of life is it's fixed on Christ. It's, it's fixing our eyes in the middle of our cares and concerns on the character of Jesus. How do we know who God is? We look at the cross. We look at Jesus. Jesus came to die for us. Like Jesus did not come to judge the world. He came to heal the world. And if there's anything that we can fix our eyes on in the waves of this life, it's the fact that God is good because Jesus is kind to us. That Jesus is wise. Like if he can send Uncle Peter to talk to me, a blind Asian guy from Hong Kong, you know, retired from Microsoft at 40, and can still walk in wisdom and maturity and actually loves his neighbor and doesn't get tangled up in politics and isn't bitter and cruel and, you know, isn't like complaining about his wife, like, if he can do that in Uncle Peter, like, he wants to do that in me. And that's the great, such a great tragedy, I think, is that, you know, we fall, for, we fall for the myth that that's not possible or that's not real or that's some other fairy tale. Like, what, what James is trying to speak into our spirit, that Christ is trying to tell us, is that God is good and every good and perfect gift comes from him. Verse 16 says this as he closes this chapter, don't, or closes the first part of the chapter. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above. It comes down from the Father of heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth, that we might be kind of first fruits of those who created. So I'm going to invite uh, the band to come forward, and um, I'll just put this um, uh, intentional question on the board um, as the band comes up. But um, this is the question I just want to ask you as, as they play a little bit, but like, not like, what's the Sunday school answer? Like, God is good. God is good all the time. But like, what does your heart truly believe? I just want to ask you this question for consideration. Like, is God good? Like, does he know what he's doing? The scripture is saying in James that basically there's a curriculum for our lives to make us complete, and we don't write the curriculum. We don't get to choose the subject that we're in. We don't get to just like buy the book and know the 10-year plan. That there is a faith, a daily faith that is hard, that is challenging. And God is overseeing the perseverance of our spirit to grow us into full and mature, healthy human beings. Like more than he wants to give you a miracle, he wants to make you a good man and a good woman. A man of Christ, a woman of Christ. And so the question I have for you, like, is he cruel or is he kind? Is he capricious? Is he trying to trick you? Is he trying to trap you? Is he sitting there angry about the, the test that you think you just failed, surprised that you just failed it, and 
uh, rubbing it in your face? Is he cruel? Is he mean? Is he vindictive? Secondly, I want to ask you this question. More than just asking your heart, is he good? Is asking your deeds, is he good? Like the thing that makes a religious person religious is not necessarily repetitive uh, motions. It's the motive. It's why we are doing the thing we are doing. And and many of us, you know, when it comes to maturity and faith and other things, we could be mature in finances. We can mature in communication with our spouse. We can mature in business and in leadership, but completely immature in faith because we're mature because we're students of the thing that we actually believe in. We're mature around. We are, have our notebooks open, our eyes open. We are ready to learn from the thing we think is good. So our actions, the things we do over and over and over again are telling us what we're a student of. And what we're a student of is telling us what we think is good. Is God really good? And do our deeds show over and over again that God is good, that we believe that his goodness is the best thing for us and the best thing for others? I think James would want to ask us that. And lastly, he'll, he'll speak about this later on, is about the tongue. Like if you thought about the worst private conversation that you had, the most gossipy, ugly, fearful conversation that you had, and we have to play it on the loudspeaker right now, what would it tell you about your belief in God? Like is God the one who is overseeing your life? Is God the one that is... That is orchestrating and writing your story? Or is it the person that you're offended by? Is it, you know, the political party that you think is taking over? Is it some other circumstance that you run into? Your your tongue is telling you about your theology, about the goodness of God. And here's what James is saying. There is so much wholeness and healing available in Jesus because he is so good and he wants to give wisdom. It is his idea to give us wisdom, but it comes through asking him. And life is coming at you right now, not on accident, but on purpose, in trials and in waves. It is knocking against your door and beating against your heart and you will make it. God, God is, is uh, he, those he has justified, he is um, causing to persevere, he's causing hope to grow into patience and character. Like God is good enough in you to shape you into the complete version of who you're supposed to be, but it all has to hinge on this one thing. Do you believe that God is good? That's the question that I have.